Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is Josh Summers, and I'm very glad you're here today. In this podcast, I I really try to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. And in this episode, I'll be sharing a Dharma reflection I gave last Monday on the story, the life story of of a curious Buddhist saint. And I say he's a curious Buddhist saint because for a large section of his life, he he lived as a serial killer. And, and he accrued some pretty heinous bad karma for himself. His name, if you haven't heard about him, his name is Angulimala. And Angulimala is so named because uh, he would uh, secure around his neck the little right finger of all of his victims. So he literally wore a garland of um, his, his victims' fingers, which is quite a gruesome image. And yet, even this man was capable of attaining full enlightenment. He became an arahant, one who is fully awake, when he encountered the Buddha's teachings, um, and or more precisely, when he encountered the Buddha. Um, so I talk about that in this podcast, and the reason I bring this up now is that uh, at some point in the spiritual path, it's very common for people, as I say in the talk, to experience the the effect, the downstream effect of their own negative karma, sort of actions they've done on others in the past that have um, that really agitate or, or ensnare the heart in remorse and regret and shame. And in addition to you know, reconciling oneself to the bad karma we've visited upon others, another manifestation of ill will in the path is sometimes ill will towards oneself for the bad karma we've caused ourselves directly. And, and, and whether it's the bad karma we've caused others, the bad karma we've caused ourselves, the antidote uh, is always going to be some combination of compassion and wisdom. Compassion born out of, the, of coming to terms with the suffering that is generated from unskillful mind states. Um, and that's really at the heart of meditation, to awaken to those unskillful mind states and uh, cultivate the, um, the, the sort of the antitotal uh, energy and mind that can transcend those difficult mind states. So I think this theme is, is one that uh, members of the Sangha have really uh, resonated with, and it's one that in kind of collecting my ideas and, and, and doing some reading on these themes, I found it very enriching for my own practice. So I, I hope you find this to be the case for yourself. Before I give you the talk, I just wanted to make one clarification or correct one error that I made in the talk, which was that the story of this of this Buddhist saint that I share, the story of Angulimala, I share this um, largely drawn from the, uh, the, the academic work of a German Buddhist scholar named Helmut Hecker. And in the talk, I uh, mistakenly refer to Helmut as a woman, uh, referring to her scholarship, when in fact Helmut Hacker was pointed out to me by a, a dear student in Germany. Um, Helmut Hacker is a man. So I apologize to Helmut Hacker for the confusion, and I apologize to you, my dear listener, for not uh, double-checking things a little bit more stringently on my end. Going forward, I, I hope to do that. But without further ado, I now bring you uh, today's talk, Angulimala's Karma. Thank you. 
this evening's talk, um, I'll be continuing on with uh, the series of reflections I've been exploring around the difficult energies, the difficult emotional, mental states that that visit and uh, people whenever they they go deep into themselves, particularly in a spiritual context. Um, in Buddhism, this list of difficult states is referred to as the hindrances, and the hindrances are kind of placeholders for the whole spectrum of difficulty that we encounter as human beings. And the placeholders include desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. Um, but they would include you know, addiction, uh, lust, rage, anger, ill will, agitation, anxiety, sloth, confusion, despair, despondency, skeptical doubt, uh, confusion, uncertainty, the whole gamut. And that's just a, a short list of them. And I was, as I was preparing for tonight's talk, which is a continuation of the theme of ill will, um, I reacquainted myself with a passage or a section of a book uh, by the wonderful Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, as many of you know, is one of the founding teachers of the Inside Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And um, she's written many books uh, over the years, but this one is called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. And um, she tells of an experience she had in 1984 with the Burmese teacher Sayadaw Upandita. And um, as some of you know, Sayadaw Upandita was the same teacher I had 20 years later in 2004. But she said, she says this in, in chapter five of her book, A Loving Kindness. She says, when I first practiced, first practiced meditation with Sayadaw Upandita in 1984, I went through a period of disturbing memories about all the terrible things I'd ever done. Memories of spurning childhood friends, of telling lies from seemingly good motives, of holding on to things that I was perfectly capable of giving, giving up. And these all came up to haunt me. And I didn't even want to tell Sayadaw, the teacher, that I was experiencing this, but I did. I should say, because I had read her book before going to work with a teacher, when I experienced the same like cycles of, of bad memories of things that I had done, I didn't bother, bother bringing it up to the teacher because I knew what he would say based on what's in the book. But she brings it up to, to Sayadaw Upandita, and, and she says, you know, I just keep thinking of event after event after event all these bad things I've ever done. I feel terrible. I feel horrible. I feel awful. Now imagine you're the teacher and the teacher might say something consoling like, oh, you know, it's, it's understandable to feel badly, but don't be too harsh. That was something you did in a different time. You're a different person now. Be gentle, practice self-compassion. Upandita simply looks at her and said, well, you're finally seeing the truth about yourself. Tough love. Actually, he framed it as a question. Let me, let me read it accurately. He says, well, are you finally seeing the truth about yourself? He asked. And Shiri says, I was shocked at his response. Even though I was enveloped in self-judgment and criticism, something in his comment made me want to challenge it. I thought to myself, no, I'm not seeing the truth about myself. And then he simply said, stop thinking about it. And only later, she says, would I understand the wisdom of his advice? And I'll, I'll come back to that, his advice in a moment. But she continues, she says, who among us has not done things to hurt people or to harm other creatures or the earth itself? Through actions born of the mind state of aversion. And that's what we're really exploring 
in our practice. You know, what at what mind states are giving rise to certain actions in our life? But through actions born of the mind state of aversion, we inevitably harm others and we harm ourselves. We experience aversion through a host of afflictions, anger, fear, guilt, impatience, grief, disappointment, dejection, anxiety, despair. Because hatred and aversion are the opposite of the state of love, she says they are considered the far enemy of love or metta. Later on, and this is what I wanted to pick up on in today's talk, she says one of the ways in which we often direct aversion towards ourselves is in the form of guilt. As I experienced with Sayada Upandita, as we go deeper into practice, we often begin spontaneously to review everything harmful we have ever done. I have experienced this many times myself when I spoke to people uh, that were in the center that Upandita ran in, in, in Burma. Many of the Westerners all shared similar stories. They said after they had been in, at the center for a month or two, that they would start writing letters that would be sent home to all sorts of people that can get the addresses of who they'd ever slighted or harmed or caused um, suffering to, wanting to atone and make amends. So as she says, these things just start coming up. People recall having disappointed their friend 26 years ago previously by not going to her 16th, sweet 16 birthday party. Or they remember the bitter retorts that they made to a partner no longer even a part of their life. And people suffer from having committed insurance fraud that remained undetected or tax fraud. Or from the subtle ongoing fear in a current friendship because of a lie told. It is very important to be able to acknowledge such things, to experience the pain. And then as Sayadaw advised me, or Sharon Salzberg here, to just let them go, to quote-unquote stop thinking about it. Otherwise, we actually enhance a mistaken sense of self. And one of you brought this up to me at the end of, or after the talk last week in an email. But in Buddhism, um, there's a distinction made between regret and remorse. And you, you could say that this is kind of a, you know, a, a game of semantics or a hair splitting. But the way I received it and the way I've, I've really appreciated thinking about it is that regret often contains the energy of self-contraction, where we, we kind of uh, blame ourselves for the action and then proceed to uh, flog ourselves over and over again about that bad action. And, and all while we're doing it, we're really strengthening the very sense of self within that process. Like, I am such a bad person. We kind of start to see ourselves possessing these, these traits either essentially or inherently or innately. And that is not really in line with, with uh, the, the view of things in Buddhism, which is uh, an understanding that things are all dependently arisen. I mean, there are causes and conditions that give rise to everything we experience. And nothing, nothing, even the worst behavior, nothing indicates essential nature. So rather than kind of crystallizing around the guilt and shame and re regret around what we've done, Buddhism offers uh, the, the, the energy of remorse or offers the suggestion of remorse, whereby we reflect on what we've done. We see that, yes, there was harm that was caused, um, but that we take that, that awareness, that, 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 that kind of wisdom in, of, of hindsight, 
and resolve to do better. So there's a there's a there's an onward leading energy from the recollection. We don't just flagellate ourselves and feel bad. We say, oh, you know what? I made a mistake. We can own it. And and then actually rejoice in the fact that we're now seeing it and now have the potential to to correct course and, and improve. And this is this is a learning process. This is how learning occurs. We make mistakes, we learn from those mistakes, and we improve, we grow. And whenever I've heard Dharma teachers share about um, ex- the experience of uh, negative karma that returns, so past actions, past speech, past, past uh, conditions that we've been part of that have caused others harm, um, one of the stories or one of the um, teachings that is brought forward is the recollection of this character named Angli Mula. And I briefly mentioned him last week, but Angli Mula was. Sorry, Angali Mala. I always make turn him into a mula for some reason, but Angali Mala. Mala is the garland. And Angali means finger. And uh, this particular guy, uh, before he was a student of the Buddhas, was a serial killer. And um, I never knew the full extent of his story, but in the short sort of Cliff Notes version of the story, um, this is a guy that got on the wrong track in life. Uh, and for one reason or another, starts um, fetishizing, uh, removing people's little right fingers, and 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 he so he, he cuts them off. He often kills the victim too, and then he would uh, thread the the fingers of his victims around his neck in a garland. So he was known as Angli Mala for finger garland man, the guy who who had these trophies of fingers around his neck. Um, <clears throat> But as I promised last week, I, I discovered I have a, I have a source on, on on this character's life, and um, and reading it, I realized there was more to his story that I think has important Dharma implications and sort of important implications for all of us. You often, you know, the, the simple rendition is like even he, even a serial murderer, was capable of full enlightenment. So you know, whatever you've done, you can let yourself off the hook and, and go for go for nirvana. Um, but there really is more in his story. So tonight I want to try to go through some of uh, the elements that I find fascinating in his story or just entertaining, and then um, <clears throat> try to place those in and situate them within the dynamics of our, our own meditation life and practice. So the, the version of the story that I came across, which is in a book, which I'll recommend actually, a book called Great Disciples of the Buddha. This is a book that was recommended to me by a Dharma friend named Philip Starkman, up in a teacher in Toronto. I met Philip in Burma, and um, uh, when we connected once, he said, "I've really been loving this book, The Great Disciples of the Buddha. You should check it out." So, I, of course, I picked it up. But when I got it, it was edited. I realized it was edited by this monk Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's translated many of the Buddhist teachings, and every other. Uh, I love Bhikkhu Bodhi's work, but every other book I have by Bhikkhu Bodhi is very dry. You know, his translations and his commentary is, is very doctrinaire and very, very clear, but quite dry. And um, for one reason or other, the book never got cracked. <laughs> Many of the books on my shelf that were just collecting dust. But um, I, when I was going online looking for stories about Angli Mala, uh, this book kept coming up. And sure enough, when I looked into it, I found it very readable. 
like very entertaining, very readable, and very interesting. Um, and the book itself, I should say, was compiled by two German Buddhist practitioners and scholars. One was a monk named Jana Panaka Terra, and one was a, a Buddhist scholar named Helmut Heckler. And, and, and it was Helmut's work that uh, was on the story of Angulimala. So it's, it's her account that I'll be sharing with you. But basically, um, back in the day of the Buddha, uh, there was this king, uh, King Pasanadi, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And the king had a uh, royal chaplain, sort of a royal uh, religious advisor, a Brahmin named Bhagavwa Gaga. <laughs> I just love the name, Bhagavwa Gaga. It was long before Lady Gaga. But Bhagavan Gaga um, was a royal chaplain to the king. And he, he was married to a woman named Montani. And one night, Montani gave birth to a boy. And as often happened, I surmise from these stories, um, they had a horoscope uh, read on their new son to get a sense of what would be the, the fate or the, the life ahead of their, of their newborn child. And it's like, be careful what you ask for. They got the horoscope and the horoscope came back that their, their new son, their new bundle of joy, had a robber constellation horoscope, quote unquote, robber constellation. And I, I, it gave me pause. I started to wonder like, what other kind of constellations might someone be, be, be slotted under? You could have like a, a monk constellation or a like a, a music constellation or a doctor constellation or a cook constellation. This guy, unfortunately, uh, found himself under the stars of a robber constellation. And the story is really quite interesting because the next day, uh, the, the Brahmin, the, the royal chaplain, went to uh, pay uh, to, to visit the king just as a part of his normal um, sort of um, tour of duties. And when he went to the king, he asked the king, how did you sleep, sir? And the king said, I had a terrible night. I couldn't sleep at all. For some reason, my, my auspicious weapons that were at the foot of my bed, they started to sparkle in the middle of the night. And I was so disturbed by what that, what that meant, what that might mean, I couldn't get back to sleep. Tell me, do you think that the kingdom is under threat or I'm under threat because my, my weapons are sparkling in the middle of the night? <laughs> I mentioned last week, um, this is way beyond Game of Thrones. This is way cooler than Game of Thrones. And the, 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 the chaplain said to the king, he said, oh, no, 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 don't worry. This kind of thing is, is, is spreading through all the kingdom right now. And last night, my wife gave birth to a son who has a robber constellation in his horoscope. And this must be the reason why your weapons were sparkling in the middle of the night. Don't worry. We'll take care of it. It's just our son. <laughs> And the king said, oh, okay, well, I'm glad to hear that. But then the father, and this is how brutal some of these stories are, the father says, do you think we should kill him? <laughs> I mean, with this constellation, do you think we should just kill him? And the king says, oh, no, 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 no. There's no need to kill him. My guess is that we can, we can culture him nicely. We can give him good education. We can, we, can, we can look after him, and he will grow up and, and become a, a fine, upstanding citizen and part of our kingdom. So... The boy receives his name, and the boy's name, as irony of ironies would have it, they give him the name Ahimsaka. And Ahimsa, if you're familiar with the yoga principle of Ahimsa, means nonviolent or harmlessness. So he's named harmless. 
And over the years, Ahimsaka grew up to be strong. He was very physically capable, but he was always well-behaved and very intelligent. So when he came time to go to university, his parents were able to get him into the Oxbridge of the day, this university in India known as Takasila. And um, he flourished when he got to university. He flourished so well that he became the premier teacher's star pupil. The, the teacher's name was not given, but he became the premier teacher's star pupil and also the teacher's pet, which aroused the envy and jealousy of his fellow students. He was a model student, exemplary in every way, and his classmates couldn't stand him. And they decided to poison his character to his teacher, or poison him to his teacher. So in the telling that, that Helma gives, she says three groups of students plotted over a period of several weeks to go have individual conferences with a teacher, warning him about the invidious, evil, manipulative plans that Ahimsaka was pl plotting to usurp and take the teacher's seat at the university. And the first time the, the students came, the first group came, and the teacher said, that's ridiculous. Ahimsaka would never do this. You're just, you're just talking rot, basically. Go away. But by the third group, the, the teacher's suspicion had been aroused. And once it was aroused, he, he, um, he couldn't let it, let it be. He couldn't, he couldn't leave it and, and, and forget about it. And this is where it gets a little bit strange, the story. But the teacher then calls a meeting with Ahimsaka. And Ahimsaka had just finished or completed his degree. He had finished his, his studies. And the teacher says, now that you have finished your studies with me, you must give me a gift to honor the course that you've received from me. And Ahimsaka says, sure, I would love to honor you. You're my, my, my very highly respected teacher. I'll do whatever you'd like. What, would, what can I do for you to make you happy and honor, honor the teachings you've given me? And the teacher says, you can honor me and honor the degree that you've received by giving me, bringing me a thousand little fingers from the right hand. Now, you know, you're reading along, you, you know, you're kind of, you, and as you read these things, you kind of get lulled into the anachronistic style of, and pacing of the story. And then you reach this, this little moment where the teachers, you expect him to say something like, you can give me a pot of gold. You could, <laughs> you can come over to my house and cook dinners for us for a month. You could do all sorts of things to honor the, the degree you've just received. But never in my wildest mind, imagination would I imagine the teacher to say, bring me a thousand little fingers from the right hand. Now, Helmut's analysis and commentary, and she's speculating here, but she says, likely, the teacher realized that in the process of trying to secure these fingers, Ahimsaka would himself be killed or run into trouble, or he'd be arrested and, and put away. So that basically the threat that Ahimsaka posed to his own seat at the university would be removed in the process of Ahimsaka trying to fulfill this, this really disgusting and ridiculous um, uh, demand of his teacher. And initially, Ahimsaka does protest. He says, no, 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 my, my family's, my, I come from a harmless family, a good family. 
this will bring great um, ill repute and, 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 and shame to my family if I do this. But the teacher basically says, if you don't do this, we're going to rescind your diploma. Pretty, pretty taxing and pretty, pretty Game of Thrones-ish <laughs> if, you, if, you've been, if you've ever watched any of that. Um, so this is where the story gets pretty dark now. And Ahimsaka, whether it's because of just blind obedience to his guru, which is sometimes an explanation for why he went off in, in this course of action, just a blind allegiance to his guru. And I've uh, met people, contemporary people who have been subject to cults with very manipulative, powerful gurus who find themselves doing things in violent actions that they later regret at, at, the, at the guru's behest. So this happens. This definitely happens. Um, and, and unfortunately, Ahimska goes out and starts killing. He sort of sets up on this high cliff where he looks down upon a road. And when he sees travelers coming down, he would go down and um, kill them, take their finger, the right little finger, and, and string it on their neck. And this goes on for a while. And eventually... The, there's such dread and fear in the local uh, community that that he, that this this character that he's now named Angali Mala, the finger garland demon, um, is creating so much calamity that the villagers are terrified to leave their their homes, and so they're even getting attacked in the middle of the night. So they go to the king. They go to visit King Pasanati and and tell them what what is happening. And the king, upon hearing about this blight to his kingdom, this, this killer that's on the loose, issues a royal edict that they will capture Angulimala. And as soon as Ahimsaka's, Ahimsaka's mother hears about the king's decree to capture this, this, this serial killer, she realizes that her son has not come home from the university on time. And she remembers the horoscope. And in the telling, she's intuitively puts two and two together and intuitively comes to realize that this serial killer that, that the king is going to go capture and put away is her son. And moved by, uh, at first she tries to, to, to talk to her husband, the, the Brahmin, and says, please, would you go out into the, to the forest and, and speak to him and get him to change his ways, more or less. And the husband says something like, uh, look, He's, it's a beyond our control now. His fate is his own. I want nothing to do with it. it. Washes his hands of it. But the mother, motivated by great unconditioned maternal love, wants to try to intervene. Now, at this point in Angali Mala's career, he's, he's taken 999 fingers. He needs one more to fulfill his teacher's demand. Just one more. And as his mother is approaching him in the forest, he recognizes her, but also feels like, well, one more finger, it might as well be her then. And he doesn't realize that, at least in this cosmology, that the killing of a mother, matricide, is such a heinous crime. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a level of criminality above and beyond just plain old garden variety murder. Matricide is a one, is a fast ticket to the bottom of hell. Like irredeemable, like no return ticket to, to, to the bottom of hell. And 
this is another funny part of the story. At this moment, the Buddha's own uh, awakened eye, sort of the, the, the eye that can peer into the 10,000-fold universal system, where he can see things that, that, that beyond his physical eye can see, the Buddha could see and sense the, the danger that Angulimala's soul was in, that he was about to kill his mother and send himself to hell and for all these bad, all the bad karma that he's created. And it's mo- motivated by his own compassion for the, the, the treachery that, that Angulimala was causing. The Buddha gets up and, and tries to inter to basically intercept the mother and 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 and, and distract Angulimala. So as I was reviewing this and preparing this, it occurred to me, it's like if the Buddha had such powerful insight, you know, into what was going on, why did he wait till there was 999, fi- 999 fingers on it? Why, like, why didn't he intercede back at the first finger, right? Or the second finger, the third or the hundredth? What took him so long? We can't, he's not here to ask. We'll just have to accept it for what it is. But this is, this is sort of the pivot point in the whole story. Angulimala, while he's sort of sharpening his knives for his own mother, we'll say, sees this recluse walking along. And in seeing the recluse coming, i.e. the Buddha, he doesn't realize it's the Buddha at the moment, at this moment, but he just sees it as a, a wandering monk recluse. He sees the recluse, he says, well, if there's another vic- potential victim here, I'll spare my mom. I'll, I'll go after him. So at this point, Angulimala starts to chase the Buddha down. And that's where I want to pick up to what is contained directly in the sutta itself. Angulimala then took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver, and followed close behind the Buddha. But then, just then, the Buddha performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though walking as fast as he could walk, could not catch up with the Buddha. Who, we should say, The Buddha was walking at his normal pace. The bandit Angulimala thought, this is crazy. This is wonderful. It's marvelous. Formerly, I could catch up even with a swift elephant and seize it. Formerly, I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it. I could catch up with a swift chariot and seize it. I could even catch up with a swift deer and seize it. But now, although I am walking as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Buddha. And you, this, I mentioned this last week. Stop, recluse! Stop! The Buddha replied, I have stopped, Anglimala. I have stopped. Now you stop, too. Then the bandit, Anglimala, thought, these recluses, followers of the Sakyan Sayan. Now, the Buddha was, was from a Sakyan clan, so that's why he's mentioning it here. The Sakyan science. These, these followers of the Sakyans, they speak truth and they assert truth. But though this recluse is walking, yet he says, I have stopped, Angulimala. You too stop. This is most curious, he thought. <laughs> so here's, here's he's, he's actually, a, you know, you can see his university inquisitiveness coming back online, you know, putting aside all, all the, the, the fingers around his garland. You know, he's thinking, how is it possible that this guy is saying he stopped, but he's still walking? This is rather a riddle. So, so then he says, suppose I question the recluse. So he addresses the Buddha 
in the stanzas like this. He says, quote, while you were walking recluse, you tell me you have stopped. But now when I have stopped, you say I have not stopped. So I ask you now, oh recluse, what is the meaning of this? How is it that you have stopped and I have not? And the Buddha replied, Anglimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings, but you have no restraint towards things that breathe. So that is why I have stopped and you have not. It's only a little bit more here. When Angulimala heard these words, a second and greater change of heart came over him. The suppressed current of his nobler and purer urges broke through the dam of hardened cruelty to which he had become habituated in all those last years of his life. He realized that the ascetic standing before him was no ordinary monk, but the Buddha himself. And he knew intuitively that the Buddha had come to the forest entirely on his own account to pull him back from the bottomless abyss of misery into which he was about to tumble. Moved to the very roots of his being, he threw away his weapons and pledged himself to adopt a totally new way of life. He says, oh, at long last, this recluse, a venerated sage, has come to this great forest for my sake. Having heard your stanza teaching me the Dharma, I will indeed renounce evil forever. So saying, the bandit took his sword and weapons and flung them into a gaping chasm's pit. The bandit worshipped the sublime one's feet and then and there asked for the going forth. Going forth is the phrase for when a, when a householder uh, renounces everything in pursuit of the holy life and becomes a monk. The, the, the Buddha, the sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with the words, Come, monk, come, bhikkhu. And that was how Angulimala became a bhikkhu. There's more to the story, um, but there are two central pieces of that part of the story that I want to speak to a little bit or just highlight. Um, let's see if I can figure out where I am here. Okay, so the first is, what I was trying to say before is that humans are not in possession of essential nature. There's not an essential nature in, in, in Buddhist in the Buddhist cosmology or Buddhist psychology of things. That we are a kind of a mixed bag of good and evil. When we look into ourselves, we'll see that for sure. Or a mix of impulses. And really the path is one of learning to recognize and wake up to how these various conditions in us play out in terms of our action and how we engage with the world and how that uh, generates um, the dynamics of our life. And the more sensitive and, and, and clear sighted we can become with regard particularly to the negative conditions in our character or the challenging ones that, that cause harm, we are able to wake up to them and, and transcend them or, or purify them and, and transform them. Um, and, and I think that is on evidence in the story, particularly, um, when you see the kind of the pivots that Ahimsaka slash Anglimala's character takes, you know, he was doing really well in life, 
on kind of like the, the, the high, high road or the high path up through university. And then through the jealousy and envy of his classmates and the way they peel poison the teacher to him and, and all of that, that brought about the, the very strange and bizarre request of his teacher, which seems to have put Ahimsaka in this, in this very strange moral pickle. Do you honor the teacher or do you honor your own internal sense of non-harming? And he, he became compromised. And it reminds me of something a contemporary teacher and podcaster Sam Harris has said frequently, which is related to our current moment. And again, I'm going to try to speak about this without getting specific so we can hold it all together. But in our current moment, I think this applies. He says, this is from Sam, Sam Harris. Most people think there are a lot of bad people running around in the world. A lot of ugly mullahs. But Sam says, there aren't really a lot of bad people. There are a lot of bad ideas. And bad ideas are worse than bad people because bad ideas are contagious. Bad ideas get good people to do horrible things. <clears throat> so on one level, what I, what I would say here is that the story seems to offer a kind of mythic descriptive sense of the nature of character, the nature of a human character, how it's, how it's really the amalgamation of multiple causes and conditions and forces. And depending on the, 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 the makeup of that particular uh, conglomeration, you might get a really beautiful, lovely, sweet presentation, or you might get a really harsh, rash, violent and ugly presentation. But the second part of the story um, relates to the Buddha's encounter with Anglimala. And this is the part that particularly I think holds uh, something for our, our, our own practice. I'll just touch on this now and, and we can, we'll come back to it. I'm realizing the time is going on a bit. So back in the forest, when the Buddha goes out to intervene with Anglimala, you know, there's this kind of magical element in the story where the Buddha's walking in a serene, normal pace. Anglimala is trying to run as fast as he can to catch up and pounce on the Buddha, but he can't. This is sort of straight out of like some of those magical, mythic uh, fairy tale type stories that you see in, in, in some movies um, and, and, and other kinds of stories. The way I hold that kind of a narrative embellishment is I try to think about it in terms of the, the mythic psychological interface. How does that encounter pattern into our own psychology? What, how does it, what is the parallel in our own experience of life? And to that, I would say that it's a descriptive, what goes on in the forest there is a description of practice. That as we practice, as Sharon was saying in her book, the past will come back. Memories of things we've done, received, harm caused by us to others, harm we've received from others, all of this will come back. 
to our awake awareness. It's the key. We don't need to go into the forest to meet the Buddha. We have the Buddha in our own head. Our own awake awareness, which is what Buddha means, the one that is awake, that which is awake. As we sit and let things be, whatever arises is going to arise, and particularly with these very challenging memories, points of pain, hurt, regret, etc. When these come up, we let them be held and known by our awake awareness. And, and there's often a sense, like what Upandita said, you don't have to think about it. Thinking about it is like, how do I talk myself into feeling better about the fact that this happened? It's often what thinking tries to do. Thinking tries to lead to a resolution around it through rationalization, reframing, etc. And I'm not saying anything. there's anything wrong with that. But the path, the spiritual path, this is I'm coming to understand it, suggests something else too, which is that when we rest as our as awake awareness, we are no longer blended or identified with the experience that we're remembering. It's part of us, but it's not a defining um, feature of who we are. It's just it's a part of our experience. And you could say others might define us by it, but we're able to hold it in a way that we're not limited by it. We're not, we're not controlled by it just by virtue of the fact that you're aware of it. The thing that's aware transcends the experience of the memory. And in doing that, in really resting as awake awareness or the Buddha coming to bear and receive whatever difficulty may be in our being still. We wait, we'll welcome that in. And just as the Buddha said, we, we stop in relationship to it. We don't have to do anything. We just stop and let it be. And there's a magical transformation. We, we, we can, we, it, these things can come up and they literally are self-liberating. Not because we did some magic formula or did, had some magic sauce of like how to think about it or how to talk about it or how to like reframe it, but just by letting it into our heart and seeing it clearly for what it is, it releases itself when the awareness is awake and clear and holding it gently. That last part, that the sort of the transformational part of how awareness changes these afflictive emotions will probably need, I'll need to talk through that a little bit more. But I think that's what's being intimated in this story. It's not just, you know, a, a, there's probably a case where the, the Buddha had like a lot of, you know, a common phrase we use now is good juju. He had a lot of good juju and his juju was so strong, he was able to transform even the harshest of characters. But I think on the mythic psychological level, what the story is pointing to is the transformer, the radically transformative power that just resting into the depth of our own Buddha awake awareness, what that does to all sorts of challenging, afflictive, difficult energies that the personality makes into a problem. We're literally just stepping out of being identified as the personality that has those problems, waking up to the Buddha within that holds, contains, and transforms those through wisdom and compassion.
real briefly, I meant to share this like a few weeks ago, but I'm talking about anger. There's another Zen story related to this, where a samurai goes to a Zen master wanting to get some wisdom about things. And the samurai um, approaches the Zen master and says, sir, can you explain to me the difference between heaven and hell? And the Zen master says, I could certainly explain that to you, but you, I'm afraid, are too stupid and uncouth to understand a single word of what I'll say. I mean, look at you. You're uneducated. You're just a stupid common warrior. There's no way you're going to understand what I have to say. And the samurai was incensed and livid. He's like, how dare this, 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 this pit squeak of a monk speak to me with such, a, such disrespect? He, you know, in one breath, his sword is high and about to come down on the monk. And at that very moment with the sword held high, the Zen master said, that is hell. The samurai froze, put down the sword, stunned in a way. And the Zen master said, and this is heaven. Okay, thanks so much for listening to today's talk. I hope the reflections that I share uh, stir up some uh, interesting introspection and contemplation on your end, and I hope the um, the imagery and 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 lessons in in this saint's story um, kind of are helpful in liberating your own heart from the negative, inevitable and negative actions that humans cause and visit each other um, as a course of being somewhat ignorant about the way things are. So I hope that's helpful. And um, if you would like to join the Sangha, if you'd like to participate on a weekly basis, either at live sessions or over um, the recordings in our library, you can follow along and, and, and train along with us and practice along really um, on the path. And we'd love to have you. There's, there's a whole sliding scale of membership um, opportunities. So please check that out at our, our website, which is joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. And there will be a link for you in the show notes on that. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. And until then, please stay well, keep safe, and practice on. <laughs>